not really looked into Daniel any more than what I learnt at uh, Sunday school and then it sort of gets whipped out every now and again, doesn't it? And it becomes this book that we use as some sort of talisman or some sort of way of, of trying to interpret current events and what is going to be uh, ahead. So I thought it would be good for us to systematically uh, have a look at Daniel and have a look at what that book is trying to say. And remember, as we went through our Genesis series, we talked about the Bible being written for us, but not to us. And what that means is God's Word is, is for us, but it was written to an original audience. It was written to a group of people to read and we have to understand that context. We have to understand who was originally reading it and why in order for us to hold that and still look at this book as a book of timeless truth because there is God's truth is, is timeless. It's through everything. But we have to read it in the context of who it was written to originally and what they would have understood these concepts to mean. So that's what we're going to have, have a look at. We're going to jump in the time machine and try our best to understand what Daniel uh, meant to the people of the day and what we can do with this text and what we can do with the truth in this text. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as we have worshipped today and we've spoken about your work in us, about what you do in us and how your transformation gives us something solid to hold on to, I pray and ask that we will keep that in mind as we look back in time and as we look at this book of Daniel uh, Lord, there's been some uh, amazing stories and there's been some good things done with Daniel. I think there's been uh, some times where it's been misunderstood and misused as well. Give us the ability to, uh, to understand it in its context and help us to apply good common sense and good exegesis to this profound and wonderful book. Uh, Lord, for those that aren't here with us, for those that are still away on holidays or those that are unwell, we pray and ask that you will restore and heal, uh, that you will bring back those who are unwell and that uh, for those who can't be here for any reason, I pray that they will sense that they are missed and that they are loved and that, uh, that they will know uh, that they have a home here at Bentley. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I haven't introduced myself. For those who are new, my name's Aaron and, and I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, we've got Chris up the back here who's been doing attendance and there's also Brad, he's our sort of youth and worship pastor. He's away on holidays, but he'll be back next week. So for us to understand Daniel, for us to understand what it meant to the people who it was written to, we have to do a little bit of, a little bit of history. And this is a, a map of Israel and Judah. So when we talk about Israel, we normally talk about it as one nation. And it used to be uh, sort of when King David, the big thing that King David did was he united these 12 tribes. So as sort of the people came from uh, Exodus and they settled in the land of Cana, they all gra gravitated towards different parts and they went in and they fought their battles and established themselves as a nation. And this sort of, it was a ragtag nation. It didn't have very much unity to it. King David comes in and Saul starts to unite it, but it's not really working. David comes in and, and the nation sort of got behind this man as a king. And so these ragtag tribes became one whole nation. I feel political saying one nation all the time. I'm not talking about the West Australian political party. I'm talking about this place as a nation. It was one nation and it was one country and they were united behind King David. David dies and then there's King Solomon and the nation stays united. Under Solomon it grew. 
David was a great warrior king. Solomon was a much better governor. And so under Solomon, they grew and their infrastructure grew and their wealth grew. He taxed them heavily to keep on building the infrastructure. But as a nation, it kind of grew and grew and grew and grew. Very strong. After David, after Solomon, sort of it fell apart. There was no kings of that kind of culture and no kings of that um, reputation to hold it together. So in 922 BC, there was a separation. So the 10 tribes up the top, up the north here in Israel, there are 10 tribes up in Israel. And the two tribes down the bottom where Jerusalem is and the temple was, there was this separation. And up in Israel, as they uh, sort of started to govern themselves and broke away from Judah, one of the things they wanted to break away from was this monotheistic religion. And what that means is they worship one God and one God only. Down in Judah, that was a prevailing idea that God wants to be in relationship with us only. But in Israel, they were far more influenced by the the nations and the surrounding culture around them. And as time went on and as Israel became more and more and more influenced by the culture around it, this separation started to take place. The nations around began to influence them with you know being able to marry multiple wives and being able to sort of worship many gods and they indulged in the flesh is a way that we could say it so they started to these natural desires that we have that need to be kept in check these desires started to be allowed to let loose and the more that these desires let loose the more that the country started to fragment And so when the Bible speaks about loving God and loving God only, it's not just about God being a jealous God. He does describe himself that way. But what it is, is with God's ideas and understandings of culture came a national identity, came a skeleton, if you like, for the the nation to hold on to as it developed its culture. And for God, he always spoke about caring for the widow, the orphan, and the alien, or the refugee. And these things became central. The Ten Commandments became central. These became the spine, the skeleton for this nation to build itself on. As Israel started to allow the foreign cultures and the other cultures to sort of come in, those cultures brought with themselves their own ideals and their own values. And what these started to say was, don't worry so much about the weak and the orphan and all those sorts of, just let them worry about themselves. And the more, sort of, it became more self-centered and the wealthy people got wealthier. And the, the prophets speak about this, the minor prophets speak about how Israel's losing its way and one of the ways that it speaks about again and again and again about their loss of ways because they don't care for the widow, for the orphan or for the vulnerable. They're only looking after the wealthy and the powerful. And so in Israel, if you were wealthy and powerful, you were getting wealthier and more powerful. If you were someone who was vulnerable, if you were a lower class person, a working blue collar type person, your life got worse and worse and worse. In Judah, they held on more to this idea of widow, orphan and vulnerable, the refugee. And so their culture was built around this. And as Israel started to shatter, and as the the unity of the nation started to get further and further apart, they ended up in wars and people all around them came. Eventually in 722, after a myriad of kings that lasted for a short amount of time, Assyria comes in 722 and just overthrows them and takes them away into exile. Israel is gone. 
Judah remains. There was a, a faithfulness to them. There was a, a, a solid skeleton with which they built their, their nation's culture around. And so they held firm for hundreds more years. Eventually, they too gave way. And in 586, in a very complicated way, Judah was overthrown. Babylon, there was kings in place and there was agreements and deals. And Babylon were, as much as an empire can be, gracious to them. But there was treachery and trickery. And eventually Babylon comes in and just decimates Judah. Decimates the temple, takes everything of value, takes it home. And as part of the process, Israel, Judah, as a nation, a collective nation, end up in exile. The only people left in exile was a very small group of workers, so people who could work farms and continue to generate income, and a small amount of soldiers. And the idea was that they were basically using the land, farming, generating income, and that money was going straight to Babylon to fund the empire, as they did with all the nations that they overthrew. And the best and the brightest that Israel had to offer were taken So approximately 25,000 men, because only men were counted unfortunately at that time, about 25,000 men were taken off into exile off to Babylon. So the, the most elite in terms of academic capacity, those who were from wealthy families, those who were good leaders were all bundled up and they were taken away. A young priest by the name of Ezekiel was part of this exile and Ezekiel went to Babylon as a priest but In Babylon, he became a prophet. And so the book of Ezekiel is about his experiences and what he saw for his nation in exile. At this point in time, Jeremiah the prophet was still Jeremiah prophesying. He was still coming in, dropping truth bombs and the truth bazooka was going everywhere. And he he would come in, he would speak and then he would leave. He would come in, speak and leave, come in, speak and leave. And so a young Daniel heard a lot of this stuff before he was taken off into exile. So Babylon is, at this point in time, a a superpower. They are taking over the world. There's Assyria and there's always Egypt. But Babylon is at its height. It's big and it's wealthy and it's expansive. And what Babylon would do is as an empire, as a group of people, they would go into a nation, they would overthrow the nation, they would take the best and the brightest, and they would take them back to Babylon. And as these people, excuse me, (coughs) as these people went back to Babylon, the best and the brightest were schooled and trained and enculturated into Babylonian culture. So they weren't allowed to speak their own languages. They were given new names. It was very clear they weren't slaves, but they weren't allowed to speak their their national language. They were given new names and they weren't allowed to leave, but they weren't slaves. This was the rhetoric of the day. You're not slaves, but you're in exile. And for, for Israel and for Judah, they were in exile for 70, 80 years. So two generations. So it's pretty hard to hold on to your culture Pretty hard to hold on to your identity when you've lost the touchstone of your nation, of your language, of your sacred books, of your priesthood, of your temple. All those things are gone 
And the brilliance of the Babylonian sort of strategy was they would take these people in, they would enculturate them, they would indoctrinate them, they would leave them there for a few generations so their children and their children's children would marry Babylonian women and then once they were well ensconced in Babylonian culture, they would be sent back to their home nations. And as they went back into their home nations, then they would set up and rule as little outposts of Babylon all over the place. A brilliant, brilliant strategy. And what they would do is they would take the Babylonian culture back to their culture and then, then Babylon, the empire of Babylon, would grow throughout the world in this manner. There are different ways empires control large groups of people. This is how this Babylonian empire did that. So that is who Daniel is. Daniel is one of these young men who has been brought in to be enculturated, to be reprogrammed and eventually sent back to his home nation so that he can govern and rule and lead with Babylonian language, Babylonian culture and with Babylonian ideals in his hometown. Does that make sense? Fantastic. Let's read a little bit of Daniel chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So just so we know in terms of, I wanted to read the whole chapter, but it gets too long. So the, the setup is, Daniel chapter 1 is kind of, what's it like when we get taken into exile? Well, what happens is you get taken into exile and then the elite, the most intelligent people, the most leadership qualified qualified people get brought in and they get put before the king and they get to eat and drink the very best from the king's table. Not a bad way to be a slave, hey? So you get to eat the very best food that this empire has to offer. You get to drink the very best wine that this empire has to offer and you get to sit with the leaders and the most intelligent people at the king's court within the king's table. You are a, a exile, but you are surrounded by the most elite and exquisite delicacies that this empire has to offer. And Daniel is here and he says, this food starts to come out, this wine starts to come out and the other things come out. And Daniel says, do you know what? I don't want to do this. I don't want to eat this way. And he says to the leader, he says, can I and those who choose to, we just want to eat vegetables and drink water. And this guy says, this leader within this group says, you can't do that. You have to stay healthy and look good. And Daniel says, I propose a test. Let us for 10 days do this and see what we look like at the end. And that's what we're going to pick up at now. So Daniel chapter 1 verses 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the younger men who ate the royal food. So the guard took their choice food and their wine. I'm sure everyone was really happy about that. So the guard took away their choice food. And the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Thanks very much, Daniel. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dream. Uh, he could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So Daniel said, I don't want this because it's going to dull me in some way. And so Daniel says, we're going to take it, we're going to pull back from this. And as a result, Daniel was able to remain clear. Daniel was able to remain perceptive. And Daniel was able to hear God in exchange for what was going on because everybody else was being dulled down by the pleasures of this empire. 
Let's keep going. At the end at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's the next king. So Daniel remained in the king's service, in the inner court, in ways that no one else did. He had awareness and understanding about things times 10 rather than everyone else. So what? Why do we begin this book this way? Why is this important? Here we have a picture of a ski jump. And I love the imagery here because once the skier is at the top of the ramp, at the top of the jump, the only time the skier can pull out of the jump is right before they begin. I don't know if you've seen the movie Eddie the Eagle, but in Eddie the Eagle, as he's learning to jump, once he goes down that ramp, you are committed. No, No matter what happens, you cannot stop the momentum and the inertia as you head down the jump. Daniel, in chapter 1 of this book, is at the top of the ski jump. And as he is there, he knows that if he partakes in the delicacies and the wine and everything that goes along with being in the king's court, and I'm sure there was far more than is written down there for us to read, he knows that if he steps into this world, he will lose something. He knows that these delicacies, that this wine represents far more than just good food and good wine. Because once you begin down that road, more is expected, more is wanted. And all of a sudden, in a way that you're unable to speak to the culture because it is feeding something in you. Daniel says, I don't even want to begin here. Because if I begin down this road, I'm not going to be able to be used by God. And the way he was used by God was he was able to speak truth to culture. And Daniel knew that if he headed down that road of indulging, he would have lost something. Now think about this in terms of how we are in this world. We've been talking a little bit about the kingdom of God and we've said the kingdom of God is not the church. The kingdom of God is not a denomination. The kingdom of God is where we as God's people do God's will on earth. We use the Lord's Prayer, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is where you and your people go out into this world and do God's will. And God's will is primarily based in bringing about what God wants to happen on earth as it does in heaven. So this idea of kingdom happens when you go to work. There's no such thing as a sacred and secular. You don't come to church, do the spiritual thing, finish that and then run off to work and go to work. You are, as you are at church, at work. You are someone who can bring the kingdom of God at work, at home, doing the gardening, washing your car, walking the dog, everything. What Daniel's saying is my ability to be able to do that will be incredibly compromised if I am drunk 
if you like, on the delicacies from the king's table, if I'm inebriated, if I'm intoxicated. Because there's a give and take that happens. As the delicacies come, he's sort of satiated. He's satisfied and sits back. There's a part of that that's good. There's part of that that's okay. But Daniel knows that if he's to speak truth to culture, if he's to be in the heart of the king's court and be able to speak the truth there, he has to be sharp and alert. He has to be ready. And if he's sitting back fat and satisfied, if he's sitting back inebriated, he's not going to be able to do that. Because you enter into a bargain, don't you? This is how addiction begins. All addiction begins as a wonderful way of finding relief. Speak to anybody who's gone through AA or NA or anything. We've all been addicted to something, I think, in some shape or form. It begins as an absolutely wonderful relief. Oh, it's been a hard day. I'm just going to whatever it is. And then pretty, pretty soon that desire becomes a demand. And you start to know that when you're thinking about whatever it is that offers you relief at 12 o'clock in the day or at 9 o'clock in the morning, your desire has now got claws in you and it becomes a demand. We are unable to speak truth to culture when we are intoxicated by our culture's delicacies. Does that make sense? The more and the more and the more that we are intoxicated by our culture's delicacies, the less we are able to speak truth to our culture. And you don't have to be in the king's court. You don't have to be in the governor's office. But you can speak truth to culture at your workplace. You can speak truth to culture in your homes. You can speak truth to culture with your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. If we are intoxicated by our culture's delicacies, we will not be able to speak accurately to it because we've created an unhealthy addiction. We've created an unhealthy relationship with delicacies. Now, that doesn't mean, please hear me well. I'm not saying that we all need to live on water and vegetables, like Daniel said, but I think it's a call for us as Christians. I think... One of the ways, certainly in the church I grew up in, the way that we were Christian was we would walk up to people who were doing the wrong thing and say, God says that if you continue to do that, you are going to hell. God says that this, that was the way we spoke truth to culture, which was incredibly unhelpful and created more of a gap than anything else. If you want to take the kingdom into your culture, if you are alert and awake and sharp and not dulled down and relaxed and have an unhealthy relationship with delicacies, then you will not be able to speak truth to culture. And truth to culture for Daniel, he was alert and aware. That was all it was. God gave him some revelation. Of course he did. But as you see as we go through, he's a lot of what Daniel does is just common sense. And God shows up for him. God speaks and he listens. He's able to hear because he's not intoxicated. He's not caught up in what's next, what food can I try, what delicate, you could imagine the types of food that they would have eaten, you know, it would have been very basic. And then he's in the king's court. You can imagine the food from all over the then known world coming into this king's court. You can imagine how lost in the pleasure, how lost in the newness, how lost in the excitement one could easily become. 
It's like fasting. I hadn't fasted before. Uh, I, I hated the idea of fasting. quite enjoy my food. Um, and the first time I fasted was because we had some difficult decisions at the church and I was so lost. I couldn't think with clarity. And so my good wife said, why don't you fast? I said, get behind me, Satan. I don't want to hear any of that fasting business. And she said, Aaron, you're the, you're the leader. You should be doing this. It should be part of your part of your spiritual disciplines and so I did and a couple of people on council we fasted together the first time I ever did it and I remember the first day was like like hell it was terrible all I was thinking about was what I was going to eat and what everyone else was having and what I couldn't have and it was terrible day two and day three I stepped into an incredible state of clarity once I had said to my body you're okay I've got enough stores to get me through a day or two Once I did that and I was able to actually sort of get a hold of those desires and get a hold of that hunger and get a hold of that, that I have to have and I have to be sure, there was an incredible state of clarity and prayer was so much easier. I was so much more alert. I was so much more present and I could do it much, much easier. There's a truth to fasting. Now, we have got phones and computers and Twitter and Facebook and these things continually distract us. These are our modern day delicacies. Because you can be at home telling the kids it's time to do the dishes and they're saying, I don't want to do the dishes. Why do I have to do the dishes? I did it last week and why do I have to? Instead of listening to that, you can just look on your Facebook feed and go, oh, look, such and such is in Bali. Dan, he touched me, he hit me. Do you know that story, church? Amen. Who wouldn't want to look at some picture of someone swinging on a swing in Bali? Who wouldn't want to write a post up there and and have other people like it and say, you are the greatest. We can be lost in our culture's delicacies. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because distraction is a billion dollar enterprise. It's, It's the biggest, distraction is the biggest business second to pornography, which I guess is distraction in the world. This, this stuff is unbelievably, we suck it up. We want to be distracted from our present reality. That's the delicacies of our age. And if we are distracted and we are intoxicated by these things, you will not speak good, relevant, aware truth. Who thinks clearly when they're stuck in their phone? You just don't, do you? My kids, when I do it, my kids will come up and put their hand over the screen and say, Dad, 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 Dad. Sorry, son, I was praying. No. But they know that I'm somewhere else. I'm intoxicated. I'm being sucked into the delicacies of my culture. And in that moment, I'm not present. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know how they're doing it. And I cannot speak truth into that situation. Amen? Is that convicting for you? Because it was incredibly convicting for me when I started to unpack it a little bit. And Daniel is this beacon of truth in amongst this culture where distraction is being presented to him on gold platters. Take it, take it, take it. Enjoy, enjoy. Here's some more. Here's another film. Here's another movie. Here's another beer. Here's another scotch. Here's another whiskey. Here's some more shops. And now they're open till nine o'clock, seven days a week. You can shop as much as you like. And then there's eBay. And then... Have some more. Have some more. And we go, yeah, click, 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 click. And I'm just not even present around what's going on. 
And in that point in our stories, we are not able to speak truth in our family. We are not able to speak truth in our family. In Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 23, the king puts all of his departments. So Daniel's, Daniel's in this group of people who are the, the magicians. And we say, well, magicians. This is the science department of the Babylonian Empire. They're astronomy and astrology and map making and science and observation. These guys are the king's wisdom machine. They're his science department. Science and mysticism is all wrapped up together. And the king walks out and says, I've had a dream. And normally he would tell the science department what the dream was and these guys would say, well, this means this and this means this. And the, and the king says, do you know what? Tell me, wizards, and tell me, magicians, and tell me, people, what was my dream? What was my dream? And then interpret it. Daniel chapter 2, the magicians are saying, how are we supposed to tell you what your dream was? The king says, you all don't know what you're talking about, so I'm going to round you all up and I'm going to kill you all. So he rounds everybody up. This is the king. This is how they did it. So he rounds them all up and he, they come into Daniel and his friends and they say, we're going to round you up and we're going to take you out and kill you. And Daniel says, hang on a minute. Just let me go away and talk to my God and then I will be able to come back and tell you what you need to hear. And so Daniel does that. And then he says, stop all of this. And he walks up to the king. Remember, he's present. He's alert. He's not dulled by the culture. He's not dulled by the delicacies. And he stands there. And in Daniel 2, verse 36, he says, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. I'm sure the king enjoyed this so far. In your hands he has placed all mankind and beasts of the field and birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Let's keep going. The great God has shown, Daniel 2, 45b, the great God has shown the king, has shown that the king will place Sorry, let me start again. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. So what was the mystery? The king had a dream and in this dream he saw a statue and this statue had different aspects to it. There was a, a head of gold. This is a better one. There was a head of gold and a chest of silver and all of these different things represent a different kingdom of the world. So after Babylon, so this is Babylon up the top here. So the king hears that he's the head and the head is made out of gold. The chest and arms of the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, they come next. Bronze, uh, bronze thighs of bronze, they are going to be ancient Greece. That's, that's Alexander the Great. He comes in in 333 and just takes over the world. After him, there's going to be legs of iron and that's going to be the, the, the Roman kingdom. 
and then under that will be the kingdom of iron and clay. And so this is, this is a combination of Rome and Christianity. And then down the bottom, there's going to be this feet of clay. And then there's this, this rock that's spoken about. And this rock is going to crush all sorts of things. And scholars say, they suggest that this rock is going to be representation of the kingdom of God coming. That's the book of Acts where this... This kingdom, this rock comes in and crashes open the Roman Empire because Christianity floods throughout the world. Even though Rome tries its best to destroy it, the rock, the kingdom of God, destroys these feet, these legs. Now, this has been used to try and interpret it. It's been used as some sort of talisman and a way of, this is what's going to happen and who's the new kingdom and empire. I think we've got to look at it in the context of who it was written to and why. The king hears that Daniel's able to, to, to understand his dream, to tell him his dream, number one. And then the king hears that he's the head of gold. He doesn't seem to understand that his kingdom is not going to last forever. He doesn't seem to be too worried about that. He doesn't seem to be too worried about all the other empires. What he is fascinated is someone could tell me what I dreamt. And I'm the head of gold. That's what he seems to think about. And as he hears this, he falls down on his face and he worships. He worships Daniel and he worships Daniel's God. Daniel was able to be present. Daniel was able to be not, by, not dulled by the delicacies of his world. And Daniel, when faced with a trauma, which is we're going to take you out and kill you, he's able to stop and say, just give me a moment. And Daniel spends the night praying to God, hoping. And believing and trusting that God will come through for him. What is the point and the purpose of the book of Daniel? Really simply, Daniel tells us that God is over all. God is over all. And the point of Daniel is this story for Israel and Judah, this nation who've been taken away. It's for them to remember that even while they're in exile... Even while they're away from their temple and away from their country and away from their people, God is still present with them. And God is still working in them and through them, even in the midst of Daniel being in the belly of the beast in the king's court. God is at work even there. And so for these people, as they start dribbling back in 60, 70, 80 years time and they start rebuilding their nation again, with them goes the stories of God even working for them, even while they're in exile. And Daniel is a story for you and I to be able to know that even though we don't live, you know, we so-called live in a Christian world, we don't anymore. We live more in a secular world, that even though it isn't what it's supposed to be, God is overall, God is still moving, God is still working. Are you present? Are you aware of your tendency to enjoy the delicacies of this world? Are you able to articulate what they are? And don't get lost in thinking, well, I'm not, I don't have a problem with drinking or I don't take drugs. Think about the way that we spend our money. Think about the way that you spend your time. Think about the way that you are in conversation. Do you engage in gossip? Do you share requests or are you that person everyone comes to talk to about things? Um, if that's you, then you've got to start thinking, is that something that dulls me down? Because whatever distracts us can very quickly and very easily dull us down. If Daniel wasn't alert and aware, his capacity to pray and be present and hear God 
would have been well affected because we don't see God speaking to anyone else in this story at this point. So Daniel steps in and he's able to do that and that sets up the rest of Daniel's story in the heart of the Babylonian kingdom. He is doing God's work. He is bringing God's kingdom even in the midst of the the court of the king. Daniel was present. He was alert. And Daniel was able to speak truth to culture. And you and I have been given that same responsibility. We are to speak truth to culture in our own families, in our workplaces, and also within our nation and also within the world. We are to speak truth to culture. And that truth comes through hearing God, being present with God, and being able to bring the kingdom wherever it is that we are. Let's pray. Father, as we read Daniel, the thought of a young man being taken from his home, from his culture, from his people, from his language, from his God, from his temple, from his sacred texts and books, and being put in this court, being offered every delicacy that you could ever imagine. This young man had the presence of mind to know that if he heads down that road, if he hops on that ski jump and and launches himself, he will not be able to stop. Holy Spirit, would you give us clarity to know what ski ramp that we are currently standing on? Where... Where are we about to lose some control? Where are we about to lose some of our self-regulation? And maybe we're already on the ramp. Maybe we're at the end. Maybe it's time to crash and rethink. Holy Spirit, would you give us the awareness to know what delicacies of our world have got their hooks in us and give us the ability to be able to speak truth into our culture. Help us self-regulate. Help us fast from whatever it is that we need to fast from and regain control and be able to speak where we need to speak in our families, in our homes, for ourselves, for our workplaces and for our world. God, and help us to remember that you are over all. And even in the midst of captivity, even in the midst of exile, you can speak, you can lead, you can guide and we can have the ability to bring something holy and godly, even in the king's court. Give us faith and trust to believe that you speak, that you lead and that you guide, and give us the ability to be able to step into those situations with confidence, knowing that you are with us. You know what we need. We know what we need. We know where we're losing control. Give us the courage to be able to have that honest conversation with ourselves and begin a process of putting in place some self-regulation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, thank you, church.